Welcome to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. She's a Canada Research Chair in Global Health Equity and Social Justice with Marginalized Populations and an Associate Professor at the University of Toronto's Factor in Wintosh Faculty of Social Work. Every week, the show features amazing speakers from around the world talking about stigma from research, lived experiences, and activism perspectives. Why should we care about stigma? What can we do about it? Thank you for tuning in. Let's start the show. Today, listeners, I am so excited to be introducing one of my personal research sheroes, Dr. Judy Auerbach, as our guest today. She is an independent science and policy consultant and professor in the School of Medicine at University of California, San Francisco. She also recently served as vice president research and evaluation at the San Francisco AIDS Foundation, where she was responsible for developing, leading and managing research and evaluation. She is a public sociologist in government research policy advocacy and focuses on how sociology can inform health research and policy on HIV, women's health, and gender equity. Welcome. How are you today? I'm just fine. Thank you, Carmen. It's a pleasure to be with you. And what I ask my guests is if we're in an elevator together, imagine there's no COVID or we all have vaccines and someone says, so what what kind of work do you do? How do you describe that going up a couple of floors? I worked on my elevator speech for about 81 floors and I'm not always very successful at it because I've had a pretty bizarre career. But I think the gist of it is I work across disciplines and sectors to advance the HIV related research agenda to ensure that it is cross-disciplinary and respectful of all disciplines and that the fruits of the research agenda can be and are cognizant of, informed by, and applied to community policy and program. And much of what I do is rather than being a researcher directly myself, the work that I do is really about enabling others and supporting others to do the research that they should be able to do. I love that about your work. And I also normally reflect on how I know somebody. And I actually think I met you 10 years ago when I was still a PhD student at yep. University of Toronto. You were, I think, a keynote. And then I, I keep bumping into you, not as often as I would like, but at, at the various HIV and AIDS conferences. And I always see you as this voice that's advocating for listening to communities, for speaking to communities, um, not just other scientists. So I think that is amazing. My next question for the listeners to get to know you is, I'm going to show up at your beautiful house in California right now. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) With my time machine. And in my time machine, there's space to physically distance. Take me back, because you said yourself, you have kind of a unique trajectory. Take me back to the time and place where you figured you wanted to be a public sociologist. That's 
wow, I think probably when I was writing my dissertation and turning it into a book, which of course is expected in sociology, which is what my degree is in. And I had a tendency already to write in a certain way. And I had another colleague friend who was probably the first one of our cohort who, she was like a year or two ahead of me. And she wrote her dissertation up into a book that was this style. And I remember being so impressed and thinking, this is how you communicate social science to publics who can understand and resonate with what you're saying without going down the rabbit hole of deep theory and you know the sort of obsession with language that we we typically have so i think already in graduate school i was headed in that direction but also my focus area for my dissertation was policy related and more applied than was popular at the time. And things have changed quite a bit since the time I was in school. But at the time I was at Berkeley, very theoretical department and things like applied work or policy relevant sociology were not exactly the thing to do. And there were actually very, there, were an, there was an absence of mentors for that kind of work as well. But I think my interest in policy was really about family policy, gender in the state. Um, and I focused on childcare just to, to not get into great detail that was just always there. So I think I always had one foot in academia and one, well, foot really, one half my brain in academia, the other half of my brain out of academia. I think the other thing that really was always there is that I, I supported myself all through school, undergraduate and graduate school. So I always had as many jobs as I had courses I was taking mm. at any one time. And I think being in the work world and, you know, low level, I house cleaned, I worked in offices, you know, things like that, restaurants. Mm -hmm. So I always had this, you know, real life as compared to many of my colleagues who just went straight through school. Mm -hmm. And if they had jobs, they were at the university and it was all just very much more contained. So, so I think there's just threads that maybe weren't shouting public sociology, but they were about being a person who always was in a regular world as much as I was in this very, you know, um, privileged academic environment. And then I think things more formalized when I got a fellowship to work in Congress. Uh, there's a program in the U.S. that um, takes scientists, you apply, you get accepted or not. And if you get accepted, you go and you work in Congress or one of the federal agencies. And the idea is to have an exchange between policymakers and scientists that is two ways, basically. Mm. So if a social scientist like me is interested in policy, one really should go and learn how it's done how the sausage is made, so to speak, from inside. So that was my inspiration because I had written about childcare policy and I had a mentor who said, um, you know, you should really go learn how this is actually done, not just write about it. Mm. So when I got to Washington, I worked for a Congresswoman who uh, young people don't remember, Pat Schroeder, who was one of the you know, most important feminist Congresswomen in the US um, from the seventies on and worked on family policy legislation, our Family and Medical Leave Act specifically. So I think at that point, I would say, you know, it became more formalized as an identity, even though I didn't have language for it at the time, uh, where I, my, my interest was in talking to policymakers and their staff and constituency groups and all of that about things that came from sociology without lecturing as a sociologist. Mm. Um, and then using what I learned from those folks into thinking about sociology, sort of two directional. That's amazing. So I want to recap. So our time machine, you said grad school. Is that in, all in Berkeley? Because you, you yes. mentioned, okay. So my time machine, I get to go to Berkeley, which I love. <laughs> and then when you did the policy, was that in DC? That was in Washington, DC. Okay. Yep. That's amazing. And I also just want to say, I didn't know that we have this in common because my first 
degree is sociology, but I also waitressed for seven years. And before that, like I've been working, my partner always laughs, but I mean, it is true. I've been working since I was about seven, like delivering Sears catalogs and then (laughs) babysitting and then working Mm -hmm. in pizza joints. I actually Mm -hmm. know how to throw a pizza in the air. I used to know how to throw a pizza in the air, turn around and catch it, you know? So yeah. And then my, my waitressing skills have definitely decreased, but I, you know, knew how to carry a lot of plates, but I think that's always taught me about the importance of dignity and respect for everybody and realizing that it really matters how you talk to every single person and biases people have based on, you know, what work people are doing at that moment. So right. really interesting. So I know we're talking about stigma today and you have a lot of different angles that you understand stigma from. So I know you understand like stigma based on different social identities. And what we recently, when we met, spoke about was stigma maybe between disciplines and then also between methods. And so I'm wondering if you could tell the listeners, why does that matter? What does it look like? Yeah. And I guess it came to me uh, in our, either we talked about, or I was thinking about how I would kind of summarize my background. And the truth is like one of the things that has characterized my professional life since, I don't know, 30 years or so is I'm often the lone social scientist sitting around a table of biomedical scientists uh, since I particularly got into HIV work some time ago. And so I've had this ongoing experience of feeling like I'm constantly having to justify my existence in the room and that of the disciplines that are broadly called behavioral and social science, explain what they are, convince folks that they're important, and most importantly, that there's systematic scientific exploration (laughs) involved, that we don't just do categorized common sense which is what I think a lot of biomedical folks do. And I'm going to talk in generalizations and I apologize because there are a lot of biomedical scientists who are very um, adept at understanding and and appreciating what we do. But, But there is an institutionalized hierarchy of scientific disciplines in the U.S. and I think in Canada and globally where the social sciences are kind of at the bottom. And I hadn't thought about this in terms of stigma until we started chatting And then it occurred to me, yeah, it pretty much is. And it's a similar kind of um, experience. So, you know, on the simplest terms, stigma relates to labeling, right? Usually Mm -hmm. labeling people or communities of people and some sense of the normal versus the abnormal or the us versus the them, the othering of Mm -hmm. people. And that's very stigmatizing. And you just, I mean, you could start thinking about all the analogies. So since you also work in the biomedical world, and I think you know this experience, So the social scientists are often an afterthought. We're usually defined as the other, as the them rather than the us, uh, an adjunct and an auxiliary, you know, we'll call on you when we need you, but only superficially because what we do, the biomedicine folks is much more important. We have that distinction, hard science versus soft science. So it it goes on and on, but what it all adds up to is that there is an organized way in which scientific disciplines are intentionally or unintentionally hierarchicalized. And we find in, in anything related to health, I should say, I think it's generally true, but I'm just talking about the, the world of health mm-hmm. where, we, where I predominantly work as do you. 
And so the experience has constantly been trying to get a seat at the table to justify what we do as, you know, real legitimate and important and always being made to feel like we're supposed to be grateful. We have a seat at the table or invited into the room at all. And that the sort of absence of a sense that what we do is as relevant, mm. important, and worthy as the biomedical communities. Can I, I mean? ask you, can I yeah. ask you to say for the listeners who maybe are from different disciplines, what is your sort of pitch when you say like you're in the room, they say a bunch of biochemists or, you know, some other folks, what is your pitch to them about why social science matters? What, what do you usually say? Yeah, I'm trying to get past the justification phase because uh. I think a number of us have been doing that forever in, yeah. in, our, in professional societies and things like that too, you know, where we're just trying to argue for a seat at the table. Then once you're at the table, the things I tend to try to do, I've sort of capitulated a little bit in accepting that health research belongs to the biomedical crowd for the most part. They're defining a lot of the terms. And so when I get to interact with them or I choose to interact or I'm invited to interact with them, I try to analogize. So I'll say things, and usually for me, it's, it would be like basic virologists or immunologists mm -hmm. who are in the HIV world, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'll say, well, you know, you, what you do is you try to understand the fundamental mechanisms of the virus, how it replicates, how it enters a cell, how it hijacks it, what happens then to the human body, and so on and so on. So that's about the mechanics of this virus. Well, what we do is try to understand the fundamental mechanisms of societies and how they operate, people in relationships to each other, operating in institutions that are organized in certain ways, and how things like an epidemic then happens, or how stigma happens. Mm -hmm. So I try to analogize and say, you have basic science, we have basic science. You have interventions, you know, therapeutics or vaccines, we have interventions, behavioral change interventions, social policy interventions, community mobilization interventions. So that's, that's one thing I try to do, and it, it sometimes helps. What, what is your fear? Because I, I think I know what it is, but for the listeners, what is your fear that why does it matter if there's no social science at the table? What, what, what will we be missing or losing? Well, I think the obvious ones are when we have biomedical interventions, drugs, vaccines, mechanical tools, whatever, and nobody uses them. <laughs> Or yeah. it takes two decades to get people to use them because the preliminary work, and this gets a little bit to our methodology piece of this as well. You know, I worked at the NIH, the U.S. National Institutes of Health for nine, nine or so years, and I was very active as a representative um, of the Office of AIDS Research where I worked to this committee of folks who organized the HIV Prevention Trials Network. Mm -hmm. So I was sitting on the executive committee of the, the, the big structure that, you know, uh, runs most of the HIV prevention clinical trials around the world. And, you know, there'd be a proposal to do a clinical trial of back in the day, um, let's say it was treatment as prevention or PrEP, the earliest stuff about pre-exposure prophylaxis. And the typical way that the clinical trialists propose something is to say, we have this product that we think is going to be effective. And so we need to go trial it somewhere where there's enough incidence that we can see if this product is going to make a difference in, in reducing transmission or acquisition of HIV. Instead of saying, 
we're really interested in reducing infections among adolescent girls and young women in uh, South Africa, let's say specifically. Let's go talk to these young women, find out what their lives are about, where HIV sits in their life, what's important to them, what kind of tools they might find helpful or useful, and then from that, figure out what kind of trial to design. So this qualitative research that is, again, some of our fundamental science, our basic science, where you respect different ways of knowing, you engage people to tell you what their lives are about, their experiences, their own knowledge that could then inform the development and testing of the biomedical tool. And, and that often happens after the fact instead of before mm. as a way to understand why a trial doesn't work. I mean, we've seen <laughs> that with all the women in PrEP studies in the early years. It's like, oh, it's not working. You know, women in South and Southern Africa aren't taking the little blue pill. What's wrong with them? They know they're at HIV risk. Why wouldn't you take it? You know, so then after the fact, the researchers go back and try to find out, well, you know, why didn't they take it? I think, well, maybe if you talked to them before you introduced this thing, <laughs> you might have avoided <laughs> some of that. Um, you know, the trials never fail. They just don't produce the results that people hope. Uh, but you might have avoided some of that. And anyway, so, so I think that's a typical scenario where people like you and I would be arguing start by talking to people whose knowledge counts too. So mm. this is like the different ways of knowing, lived experience, yes. cultural uh, knowledge and things really matter and are going to tell you a lot that could then inform more technological ways of doing things. I just love that you focus on this because I find that I, I get this question, probably you do too, Everywhere I travel, especially when I'm doing something like eating breakfast, you know, I remember one time I was in Thailand, I think it was in Bangkok, eating breakfast and someone's like, oh, what do you do? And I'm like, oh, I do HIV research. And they're like, why don't people just wear condoms? It's uh, like, I've heard that like so many places, so many times, you know, like we have this solution. Why don't like basically what's wrong with people? Right. And then I just have to like, you know, depending if I've had my coffee or not, <laughs> I might be like, you know, things are much more complicated than that. Like we live in relationship with other people. We live in relationship to our world. We might have a lot going on. Like it's something that involves usually at least two people. You know, it's not right. Like and I think it's another place to analogize. I mean, you don't want to look at somebody and say, oh, they're kind of overweight. So I'll use this analogy. But you know, I usually say something like, well, how many times have you said you need to exercise more often and then you don't do it? How many times have you said you need to lose weight and then you don't do it? You know, we know, we know how hard dieting is. We know how hard getting totally. regular significant amounts of exercise is. Especially uh, in COVID. You know, and so, you, you know, when you say something like that, people are like, oh, yeah, I get it. Behavioral change is hard. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, you know, that's one way to respond to those. Yeah. <laughs> the coffee helps, but, you know, to get, to get your where, the wherewithal <laughs> to say the right thing. But. <laughs> but even when you think about the, what you said, like why trials don't work or people spend all like years developing a vaccine or a pill or something and then people don't take it. And, you know, right. that's and right why now, it matters, right? Like this is why yeah. it matters to talk to people. Right. So for example, right now we have these, this horrible COVID epidemic, COVID-19 pandemic all over the world. And I have been watching things like um, President-elect Biden, yay, um, yay, put together a transition COVID-19 
advisory group. And initially, everybody on that was a medical doctor or a kind of global security diplomacy person. The nurses yelled and screamed. So now they've added a couple of a nurse or two. But the behavioral and social science community, I don't know, I tried. I did write things. But I look at it and say, and I talk to somebody I know who was close to the transition team, and I said, you know, why aren't there behavioral and social scientists on this advisory group? This is a transmittable disease, same as HIV. It takes two people to transmit an infection, two or more, but at least two. So there's mm -hmm. some relational thing going on. But more than that, it's the same issues about risk and risk perception. And why doesn't everybody just wear a mask? I mean, that's easier <laughs> than a condom, so try to explain that one. <laughs> um, and then the really complex behavioral science stuff, which isn't my expertise, but I know enough to know to say, you really need to be talking to folks who are experts in risk assessment and decision sciences to understand why and how people are making the choices and decisions they are to act in the ways they are. And then you, you, you know, you'll learn things like the information has been so confusing and it's changed so much. So you have to deal with scientific uncertainty. Yeah the evolution of knowledge, how the instructions keep changing based on that, get people to understand that that's going to happen under these circumstances, but it shouldn't stultify people, and then give them some simple, as generic as they can be, and then maybe some more targeted specificities about, okay, if you're in this age group, and you're in this geographic situation, and you have these underlying health conditions, or these underlying social pre-existing pre social conditions, you know, put these things together in some algorithm that helps you then decide what to do. Like, do you have a pandemic pod with two couples rather than one, you know, two households rather than one household? What happens when in your pod, um, let's say you have a little pandemic pod with two or three households and some, some school opens and one of their kids goes off to school. Does that change the dynamic of your interactions? People need some clear information about all that. So my point is that the absence of, people who can speak about those things based on science from behavioral and social research to inform what is so fundamental in this pandemic, which is helping people understand what they should be doing or what risks they really have or don't have in ways that people can understand and not be stultified by like just all the numbers that are thrown at us all the time. How many infections, how many hmm. positivity rates, you know, all of that. <laughs> so, but what we're seeing is yet again, a version of what we started out talking about, which is a sort of disciplinary stigma that it does, it's not first of mind for a lot of high level people in um, the medical world to think, Oh, we really need to engage some behavioral and social scientists here who can add that piece into this, this whole discussion. It's just how do we develop vaccines? How do we manufacture them? How do we get them out there? What about drugs? What products do we have? How do we manufacture more of those? How do we test them? So, you know, we just see it constantly and it's, it's happening again in this pandemic, uh, much to the detriment, I think, of the response. Why is this happening, do you think? Why are we valuing one type of knowledge versus another type of knowledge? Uh, that is a really hard thing to answer. I mean, it's the, it's the age old question that, that people like me are, are constantly uh, trying to just figure out what, what to do and say about it is, you know, the social organization of science and scientific knowledge. I, I don't know other than, you know, a history of a historian of science could probably do a much better job talking about when and how this emerged and appeared, but we have as a, a world culture, really scientific culture, created 
institutional arrangements that valorize the biomedical, physical, natural sciences over the social and behavioral. My own theory about some of that is that social and behavioral, social science in particular, sociology, anthropology, political science, economics, are really, you, you can't avoid inequalities and you can't avoid power relationships because all societies have those. So if you're studying people in society on whatever level, um, political, economic, cultural, familial, even related to health and illness, you can't escape the way that societies are organized. That's what we're interested in. And they're organized inequitably and unequally. And there are power um, dimensions to all of this. So the sciences that draw attention to that make people very uncomfortable. Mm. And, and, you know, most of what we analyze is about the powers that be and the powers that be don't want to hear that they're the problem. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, it, it may seem like a, a kind of a paranoid or a, um, I don't quite know what the right word is. It, it's, it's a particular way of seeing the world. But, it's complexity, right? Like what we're pointing well, it, at. Yeah. It's, yes, it's power and it's relationships of inequality and the complexity. Uh, people's lives are not simple and straightforward. I was meeting with an engineer yesterday um, who is working on the rollout of piped water systems in India. And he's taking the unpopular analytic perspective of well, what could be some ways this actually exacerbates social inequity rather than only seeing it as something that promotes it mm -hmm. and saying how just the laws of physics are interact with social inequality so that the people further away from the, the source are actually going to be the ones that run out of water the first. And, right. and it, this is something that people don't really want to hear because it's getting in the way of this celebration of technology being like, huh, who might be unequally impacted by this quote, scientific progress and it's us social scientists who maybe are, are raising these um issues when people just want to be celebrating oh we have a vaccine we're like but what about the people who won't take that vaccine that's right yeah and we we do talk about unintended consequences both good and bad and that's uncomfortable for people to hear so i think a lot of what we do uh, is disquieting it's disruptive in a certain way it's discomforting and then we also often get in, accused of not having solutions. Like people, mm -hmm. oh, that's all really very interesting. You know, how inequality operates and, you know, racial and ethnic and gender discrimination. Yeah, we get all of that, but what are you going to do about it? And mm -hmm. you need to be able to show us right away what you're going to do about it. And so if we don't have a nice, neat answer for that, which we don't, because these are social processes that are, you know, historic and complicated and variable in different environments, then we sort of get dismissed, like we're of no use, except, you know, some of it's interesting. I, I hear you. Sometimes I hear people say, well, there's always going to be inequality. So what you're saying isn't necessarily new or solvable, you know, then you're like, oh. Right. But I think that's where we have to get really rigorous and say, well, let's look at um, at least incrementally what we can do. And so I think one of the kind of most understudied elements of social science is institutions. So people will talk like behavioral scientists will focus on individuals and maybe in partnerships with others, you know, dyads. 
And then a lot of social scientists want to talk about very macro social phenomenon, these isms and, uh, you know, the, the ways in which um, attitudes, stigma are, in, are um, structured at, at a kind of societal level mm -hmm. and operate at a societal level. Um, and so, you, you know, you'd say like in the health world, in the HIV world, well, we can't eliminate stigma, we can't eliminate uh, inequalities, you say, we can't eliminate sexism and genderisms. Um, so what's to be done? And I say, well, what you can do is look at how those isms are operationalized at an institutional level. So whether that's schools or families or military or political organizations, community-based organizations, whatever social institutions you're interested in, you can take that level and start saying, okay, what could we do within those social institutions? Mm -hmm. Once you understand them and how they operate and how they're structured and say, well, what could we do in those institutions um, to make some change? And I, I don't think, I don't see a lot of social research uh, supported that, that really looks at um, understanding and making change at the institutional level. That was literally my last question. You've sort of touched on it, which is, so the listeners walking their dog or walking to the cafe or sitting on the bus, listening to the podcast, and they want to know how they can be part of the solution, maybe for addressing these issues. One thing you're saying is, is maybe be cognizant of how inequalities play out in our own institutions, whether or not it's our schools or our workplaces. Maybe also what we touched on earlier was thinking about whose knowledge we value. And, and you know, I'm mm -hmm. sure you have other, other things that you want the listener to think about or to do. I think those are both great. And I think the racial justice movement in uh, the United States and actually the world now precipitated by sort of murdering of black people at the hands of police, I think has caused a moment, unfortunately it's been very distracted by COVID, but the moment in which majority peoples, particularly white people in the US for example, have been really called on in a much more significant way. And I think also opened their hearts and minds a little bit more than they used to to first of all, understanding points of view of different people and respecting mm. those points of view. But it's, there, there's been a lot more effort around learning. So you know, reading pieces about the inherent bias, I'm forgetting the right terminology for Implicit it, bias. Implicit bias, thank you. Implicit bias as an explicit bias in, in discrimination, but really reading, reading literature from authors of color. I think the same thing should could is sort of happening around gender, particularly because of a kind of louder voice of trans persons, non-binary persons who are saying things as you know, basic as what pronouns one should be using. Mm -hmm. And so people have to get past this like, oh wait, this is too confusing. I, I, I don't know, I don't handle this. And realize there's an opening to say, well, wait a minute, what's that about? Why does that matter to people? So I think what regular people, our listeners or others can do is to open their hearts and their minds at this moment 
particularly because, you know, the weird thing about COVID, that one unintended consequence of a pandemic is that it's like anything goes at this point. We're all having to do things new and different um, and try novel ways of, of thinking. <laughs> you know, so why not novel ways of thinking while we're at it? And just being open to listening, just being quiet for a while, standing back if you're a majority person, whether that's by gender or by race or whatever, and listening to others, giving them space and opening your heart and your mind to that reality as a real point of view that matters as much as what you've been taught or what you think yourself. And each of us can do that in our lives, even if we just pick off a certain area like the pronoun thing. Why mm -hmm. does that matter? What does it mean? Mm -hmm. um, try to understand that from the point of view or listen to or ask people who care about it, what it means. I love that because it's come up in it, some of the other podcasts as maybe listen to a podcast that you aren't initially interested in, you know, maybe yeah. you're not interested in menstruation stigma. Why not, why not listen to it? And, or maybe you haven't thought about dementia stigma. Why not listen and then see, you see, see what you can, can learn just by being open. I started a, like a global women's book club and how, you know, like nonfiction science, trying to read women authors, science authors, and now trying to read them from like the, you know, the global South and realizing <laughs> like so many of these authors, maybe we, you know, in North America, or at least in Canada, and in my field, haven't really had to kind of go digging to, to hear particular voices, and to, to make that effort, because sometimes, you know, the bestsellers or whatever you're popping up are just voices that you already know, or that are easier to find. And yeah. you have to maybe just go a little bit deeper to look for, for something written by some, somebody that has a perspective that you don't have. Yeah, and that's what I think the racial justice movement in particular did, it, at least in the States, where there's now all manner of book lists, movie lists, um, mm -hmm. uh, just, you know, podcasts, uh, webinars, or just, you know, talks to listen to and, and videos to watch, of people giving presentations and things like that. So you don't have to go digging for them yourselves anymore, but they're folks who've made that their businesses say, okay, you know, you're ready to read this literature. Here's a list of the top totally. five books I'd recommend. And I think that's really helped people. That's amazing. Um, so it's great you're doing what you're doing. That's that's great. Oh, thank you. Um, so before I let you go, I want the listeners to learn a little bit more about the real you. <laughs> so some wild cards, okay? Quick and easy. Wild card one, what are you watching on Netflix right now? Oh. Uh, or Hulu. I actually went back to watch Fargo. The Do you movie? know Fargo? Well, it, Fargo was the movie, and then the Coen brothers with others did this series. It's like, I think we're in series three or four now. I think there are four series so far that are in the spirit of the Fargo movie, but they're different times and places, and it's pretty wacky. You know, I've like, never seen them. I hadn't seen the movie, and then my partner was like, no, you have to watch the movie. And I'd be like, this is a strange movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and the show is strange. You know, it's, it's got its own kind of, it, it's very Coen Brothers quirky. So I like it. Oh, awesome. I'll put that down. I have to see if we get it. We don't get all the the options uh, in the Canadian Netflix world. Yeah, but you Canadians <laughs> produce Shit's Creek. That's the best thing I've ever seen in my life. I, every single episode, I shout out Shit's Creek and specifically Dan Levy. If he ever wants to be a podcast guest, 
It would be so great. I love Schitt's Creek, and I might even start from the beginning again. It, I just love that show so Yeah, much. rumor has it they may make a feature film. Oh, okay. I'll be watching that. That would be, that'd be amazing. <laughs> Dan Levy, you're invited anytime. Um, my second wildcard question is, if you could go for dinner, imagine there's no COVID or we all have vaccines, anywhere in the world, with anybody in the world, living or dead, who would you take and where would you go? Now, I am the person who can never say one as an give you one answer. You can bring a group. You can yeah, bring my, a group. <laughs> I think it would be my sister and my brother. Nice. Who I love more than any. I mean, I love my partner too. That shouldn't go without saying. But I've known my sister and my brother longer. <laughs> and we, are, we, we have a really special relationship. We're all um, born three in a row. So, one, two, you know, we're, my sister's two years older, my brother's one year older than I am. So we're close. And I just have been thinking a lot, I think in the COVID environment in particular about what matters most in life. And I just keep coming back to family or the people one mm. loves. Um, I'm blessed that my parents are both still alive and well too at 88 and 89 years old, but they're not traveling. So <laughs> I would take my sister and my brother, but also siblings. I think we have a very different and special kind of relationships. And I think what I would re where I'd like to go is to some place that my ancestors came from that we don't know very much about. So it would be somewhere in Eastern Europe. So I'm Jewish and my ancestors were all Jewish and they all got kicked out of wherever they, they came from, whether it was Lithuania or Russia or Poland or whatever it was called at the time. My brothers become quite the family genealogist. So I would love for my brother, my sister and I to be able to go to wherever the heck it is, some little town and russia poland border or ukraine actually and have whatever dinner they serve us i don't care about the food but just to be there and to explore what it would feel like to go to one's ancestral home when one doesn't have exactly an identity of that place we have a cultural identity but that's wrapped up with being kicked out of those places so it's, mm -hmm. it's complicated but i i would love to do that that sounds like what an amazing journey as a individual but as a family to do that if you ever do that you take a selfie and send send it to me i would I love, will i yeah. really hope that you get to do that i i think at least for me covid has like made me really think about where i want to go next <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> not being able to travel I'm like where do i really really want to go but that sounds really really powerful um especially knowing that your ancestors came from there but that you haven't been able to go yet that it, yeah it sounds yeah really and we can't go now of course but yeah so my last question before i let you out to this beautiful day is there any words of wisdom or advice that have been helpful to you in your life that you'd want to share with the listeners wow where to start with that i think trust yourself I grew up in a family culture that was very much about um, being independent and self-sufficient. So that served me very well. I don't know that that's for everybody. I think particularly for women and women of my generation, it was a really useful lesson mm. um, to just sort of learn how to be able to take care of yourself and to make your place in the world by, you know, you're always going to have support and people who lift you up in some way or another but not to depend on someone else for resources in particular. I mean, you ha I still depend on people for love, but for material resources and the ability to survive, I think just trying, to, trying one's best to build a strong core that allows one to be self-sufficient 
in those ways. It's not a really lovely lesson, but, but it's served us all very well, actually. Actually, many people have said things not exactly like that, but like have your own bank account, you know? Yeah, it's a Virginia uh, Wolf. It's 500, a room of one's own and 500 pounds. That was actually the strongest advice that I absorbed from reading a book, basically. That was, it is the kernel of, of my attitude. Independent think, income and being able to have your own place. Yeah, I think you, you just have a lot more choices or freedom or options maybe when you have that what you said that ability to to sort of rely on on yourself then yeah beholden to somebody (laughs) yeah i think the other advice i would give i'm not a big advice giver but i think allowing yourself to not be perfect Mm. which i think for academics is often very challenging and taking risks like you don't have to follow a trajectory. We didn't get into the whole long story of my career, which is a good thing because that'll bore everybody to tears. But I highly doubt that. <laughs> one, of, one of the kernels from that experience that I do talk to younger people about in particular is the choice to like leave a tenure track job because it was in a place I wasn't happy in or to take a fellowship, even though it got me off the academic track, you know, things like that, that if there's something that you think is going to give you an experience, you may not even know what it is but it's intriguing enough, um, you know, keep open to it. You'll land on your feet and, you know, something else will come along or you'll figure out what to do next, but don't be stymied by some notion of a career trajectory is I guess where Mm. that's going, that you have to go A, B, C, D, E, and F. And be free to explore and just live and, and see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. You are so amazing. I (laughs) am so happy and honored that you took the time to be on our show. Thank you so much. Thank you, Carmen. It's a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to Everybody Hates Me. Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. Join us next week for more inspiring and motivating conversations with stigma leaders from around the world.